Book Two, Chapter Seven of the Black Star Passes by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Slowly they cruised back to Sonor. Arcot still engrossed in thought. Would it be that Venus would fall before the attack of the mighty planes? That they would sweep out across space to Earth, to Mars, to other worlds—a cosmic menace? Would the mighty machines soon be circling Earth? Guided missiles with atomic warheads could combat them, perhaps, as could the molecular motion machines. Perhaps these could be armored with twenty-inch steel walls, and driven into the great propellers, or at miles a second, into the ship itself. But these ships would require long hours, days, even weeks to build, and in that time the Caxorian fleet would be ready. It would attack Earth within six days now. What hope was there to avert incalculable destruction, if not outright defeat? In despair, Arcot turned and strode quickly down the long hallway of the Solarite. Above him he could hear the smooth, even hum of the sweetly functioning generator, but it only reminded him of the vastly greater energies he had seen controlled that night. The thudding relays in the power room, as Wade maneuvered the ship, seemed some diminutive mockery of the giant relays he had seen in the power room of the Caxorian plane. He sat down in the power room, looking at the stacked apparatus, neatly arranged, as it must be, to get all this apparatus in this small space. Then at last he began to think more calmly. He concentrated on the greatest forces known to man, and then there were only two that even occurred to him as great. One was the vast energies he had that very night learned of. The other was the force of the molecules, the force that drove his ship. He had had no time to work out the mathematics of the light compression, mathematics that he now knew would give results. There remained only the molecular motion. What could he do with it that he had not done before? He drew out a small black notebook. In it were symbols, formulas, and page after page of the intricate calculus that had ended finally in the harnessing of this great force that was even now carrying him smoothly along. Half an hour later he was still busy, covering page after page with swiftly written formulas. Before him was a great table of multiple integers. The only one like it was known to exist in the system, for the multiple calculus was an invention of Arcot's. At last he found the expression he wanted, and he carefully checked his work, excitedly though now, with an expression of eager hope. It seemed logical. It seemed correct. Morey, oh Morey, he called, holding his enthusiasm in check. If you come here, I want you to check some math for me. I've done it, and I want to see if you get the same result independently. Morey was a more careful mathematician than he, and it was to him Arcot turned for verification of any new discovery. Following the general directions Arcot gave him, Morey went through the long series of calculations, and arrived at the same results. Slowly he looked up from the brief expression which he had ended. It was not the formula that astonished him, it was its physical significance. Arcot, do you think we can make it? There was an expression in Arcot's eyes, a tightness about his mouth. I hope so, Morey. If we don't, Lenore is lost beyond a doubt, and probably Earth is too. Wade, come here a minute, will you? Let Fuller take controls, and tell him to push it. We have to get to work on this. 
Rapidly Arcot explained their calculations, and the proof he had gotten. Our beam of molecular motion controlling energy directs all molecular motion to go at right angles to it. The mechanism so far has been a field inside a coil, really. But if these figures are right, it means we can project that field to a considerable distance, even in air. It'll be a beam of power that will cause all molecules in its path to move at right angles to it, and in the directions we choose, by reversing the power in the projector. That means that no matter how big the thing is, we can tear it to pieces. We'll use its own powers, its own energies, to rip it or crush it. Imagine what would happen if we directed this against the side of a mountain. The entire mass of rock would at once fly off at unimaginable speed, crashing ahead with terrific power, as all the molecules suddenly moved in the same direction. Nothing at all in the universe could hold together against it. It's a disintegration ray of a sort, a ray that will tear or crush. For we can either make one half move away from the other, or we can reverse the power, and make one half drive toward the other with all the terrific power of its molecules. It's omnipotent. Hmm. Arcot paused, narrowing his eyes in thought. It has one limitation. Will it reach far in the air? In vacuum, it should have an infinite range. In the atmosphere, all the molecules of the air will be affected, and it will cause a terrific blast of icy wind, a gale at temperatures far below zero. This will be even more effective here on Venus. But we must start designing the thing at once. Take some of the Immorpho, and give me some, and we can let the sleep accumulate till we have more time. Look, we're in Sonora already. Land is fuller right where we were, and then come back here. We're going to need you." The gorgeous display of the Venerian dawn was already coloring the east as the great building seemed to rise silently about them. The sky, which had been a dull, luminous gray, a gray that rapidly grew brighter and brighter, was now like molten silver, through which were filtering the early rays of the intense sun. As the sun rose above the horizon through invisible four clouds, it was still traceable by the wondrous shell pink that began to suffuse the ten-mile layer of vapor. The tiny droplets were, however, breaking the clear light into a million rainbows, and all about the swiftly deepening pink were forming concentric circles of blue, of green, orange, and all the colors of the rainbow, repeated time after time, a wondrous halo of growing color, which only the doubly intense sun could create. It's almost worth missing the sun all day to see their sunrises and sunsets, Fuller commented. The men were watching it, despite their need for haste. It was a sight the like of which no Earthman had ever before seen. Immediately, then, they plunged into the extremely complex calculation of the electrical apparatus to produce the necessary fields. To get the effect they wanted, they must have two separate fields of the director ray and a third field of a slightly different nature, which would cause the director ray to move in one direction only. It would be disconcerting, to say the least, if the director ray, by some mistake, should turn upon them. The work went on more swiftly than they had considered possible. But there was still much to be done on the theoretical end of the job alone, when the streets about them began to fill. They noticed that a large crowd was assembling, and shortly after they had finished, after some of these people had stood there for more than an hour and a half, the crowd had grown to great size. 
from the looks of that collection i should say we're about to become the principals in some kind of celebration that we know nothing about well we're here and in case they want us we're ready to come the guard that always surrounded the solarite had been doubled and was maintaining a fairly large clear area about the ship shortly thereafter they saw one of the high officials of lenore come down the walk from the governmental building walking toward the solarite time for us to appear and it may as well be all of us at this time i'll tell you what they say afterward wade they've evidently gone to considerable trouble to get up this meeting so let's cooperate i hate to slow up the work but we'll have to try to make it short the four terrestrians got into their cooling suits and stepped outside the ship the lenorian dignitary left his guard walked up to the quartet from earth with measured tread and halted before them earthmen he began in a deep clear voice we have gathered here this morning to greet you and thank you for the tremendous service you have done us across the awful void of empty space you have journeyed forty million miles to visit us only to discover that venerians were making ready to attack your world twice your invention has saved our city there is of course no adequate reward for this service we can in no way repay you but in a measure we may show our appreciation we have learned from the greatest psychologist of our nation tonlos that in your world aluminum is plentiful but gold and platinum are rare and that mortalis is unknown I have had a small token made for you and your friends. It is a little plaque, a disk of Morlus, and on it there is a small map of the solar system. On the reverse side there is a globe of Venus, with one of Earth beside it, as well as our men could copy the small globe you have given to us. The northern hemisphere of each is depicted, America, your nation, Eleanor, ours, thus being shown. We want you and each of your friends to accept these. They are symbols of your wonderful flight across space. And the Venerians turned to each of the Terrestrians and presented each with a small metal disc. Arcot spoke for the Terrestrians. On behalf of myself and my friends here, two of whom have not had an opportunity to learn your language, I wish to thank you for your great help when we needed it most. You perhaps have saved more than a city. You may have made it possible to save a world, our Earth. But the battle here has only begun. There are now in the Caxorian camp eighteen great ships. They have been badly defeated in three encounters they have had with the Solarites so far, but no longer will they be vulnerable to our earlier methods of attack. Your spies report that the first plane, the plane in which was first attacked by the Solarite, is still undergoing repairs. These will be completed within two days, and then, when they can leave a base guard of two ships, they will attack once more. Furthermore, they will attack with a new weapon. They have destroyed the usefulness of our weapon in visibility, and in turn now have it to use against us. We must seek out some new weapon. I hope we are on the right track now, but every moment is precious, and we must get back to work. This address must be short. Later, when we have completed our preliminary work, we will have to give plans to your workmen, which you will be able to turn into metal, for we lack the materials. With this help, we may succeed, despite our handicap. The address was terminated at once. The Lenorians were probably disappointed, but they fully realized the necessity for haste. I wish terrestrian orators spoke like that, remarked Morey as they returned to the ship. He said all there was to say, 
but he didn't run miles of speech doing it. He was a very forceful speaker, too. People who speak briefly and to the point generally are, Arcot said. It was nearly noon that day before the theoretical discussion had been reduced to practical terms. They were all ready to start work at once, but they had reason to work cheerfully now. Even through air they found their ray would be able to reach thirty-five miles. They would be well out of the danger zone while attacking the gigantic plains of Caxor. Morey, Wade, and Arcot at once set to work constructing the electrical plant that was to give them the necessary power. It was lucky indeed that they had brought the great mass of spare apparatus. They had more than enough to make all of the electrical machinery. The tubes, the coils, the condensers, all were there. The generator would easily supply the power, for the terrific forces that were to destroy the Caxorian ships were to be generated in the plane itself. It was to destroy itself. The solarite would merely be the detonator to set it off. While the physicists were busy on this, Fuller was designing the mechanical details of the projector. It must be able to turn through a special angle of 180 degrees, and was necessarily controlled electrically from inside. The details of the projector were worked out by six that evening, and the numerous castings and machine pieces that were to be used were to be made in the Venerian machine shops. One difficulty after another arose, and was overcome. Night came on, and still they continued to work. The Venerian workmen had promised to have the apparatus for them by ten o'clock the next morning, or what corresponded to ten o'clock. Shortly after three o'clock that morning, they had finished the apparatus, had connected all the controls, and had placed the last of the projector directors. Except for the projector they were ready, and Morey, Wade, and Fuller turned in to get what sleep they could. But Arcot, telling them that there was something he wished to get, took another dose of Immorpho and stepped out into the steaming rain. A few minutes after ten the next morning, Arcot came back, followed by a half a dozen Venerians, each carrying a large metal cylinder in a cradle, and these were attached to the landing gear of the Solarite in such a fashion that the fusing of one piece of wire would permit the entire thing to drop free. "'So that's what you hatched out, eh? What is it?' asked Wade as he entered the ship. "'Just a thing I want to try out, and I'm going to keep it a dark, deep secret for a while. I think you'll get quite a surprise when you see those bombs in action. They're arranged to be released by turning the current into the landing lights. We'll have to forego lights for the present, but I need the bombs more. The mechanics have finished working on your projector parts, Fuller, and they'll be over here in a short time.' Here comes the little gang I asked to help us. You can direct them. Arcot paused and scowled with annoyance. Hang it all. When they drill into the outer wall, we'll lose the vacuum between the two walls, and all that hot air will come in. This place will be roasting in a short time. We have the molecular motion coolers, but I'm afraid they won't be much good. We can't use the generator. It's cut off from the main room by vacuum wall. I think we'd better charge up the gas tanks and the batteries as soon as this is done. Then tonight we'll attack the Caxorian construction camp. I just learned that no spy reports have been coming in, and I'm afraid they'll spring a surprise." Somewhat later came the sound of drills. Then the whistling roar of the air sucked into the vacuum, told the men inside that the work was underway. It soon became uncomfortably hot as the vacuum destroyed. The heat came through all sides. 
It was more than a little molecular coolers could handle, and the temperature soon rose to about 115. It was not as bad as the Venerian atmosphere, for the air seemed exceedingly dry, and the men found it impossible to get along without cooling suits if they did not work. Since there was little they could do, they simply relaxed. It was nearly dark before the Lenorians had finished their work, and the gas tanks had been recharged. All that time Arcot had spent with Tonlos determining the position of the Caxorian construction camp. Spy reports and old maps had helped, but it was impossible to do very accurate work by these means. It was finally decided that the Caxorian construction camp was about 10,500 miles to the southwest. The Solarite was to start an hour after dark. Traveling westward at their speed, they hoped to reach the camp just after nightfall. End of chapter 7 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com